Hey guys, welcome back and thanks for joining me. I'm your host, Sherry. Just a reminder that if you like what you're listening to, don't forget to hit the like button and subscribe. Today's story is about a man named Philip Taylor Kramer. He went by his middle name, Taylor, so I'm going to refer to him as Taylor for the rest of the story. Taylor was the bassist in the psychedelic rock band Iron Butterfly. I can't say I was ever a fan of this band, but I remember my dad having one of their records. You may know their most popular hit, Inagata DeVita. It's like this 17-minute psychedelic rock song that you will probably need to be on acid to understand. I listened to it for a bit while writing this, and it was pretty groovy, and I imagine hippies in the 60s easily going into a trance at a show. Taylor didn't join the band until six years after the song was released, but he's played it live hundreds of times. Taylor became a man of a lot of trades. He was incredibly smart and was way ahead of his time when it came to technology. One day in 1995, Taylor disappeared and left a trail of puzzle pieces. Whether he disappeared on his own or unwillingly, it's still a mystery. My sources are listed in the description area of the video. This is the case of Philip Taylor Kramer. Taylor disappeared in 1995. Let's discuss what was going on around that time. One of the biggest news stories was the Oklahoma City bombing, which killed 168 people. Toy Story was released in theaters. Everyone was talking about if O.J. Simpson was guilty or innocent. In fact, Russian President Boris Yeltsin's first words to President Bill Clinton upon meeting him in 1995 were, do you think O.J. did it? The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame opened in Cleveland, Ohio, and for some reason I thought it was much older than that. The average price of a new house was $113,000. Forrest Gump won the Oscar for Best Film. And lastly, 1995 was the first time you would see blue M&Ms. Wow, I totally remember that. I hope I'm not showing my age here. Taylor Kramer was born July 2, 1952 in Youngstown, Ohio. Taylor's dad was a professor of electrical engineering. So Taylor grew up with this live-in mentor teaching him about science, math, and engineering. He became obsessed with math theories. He won a school science fair when he was 12. He had built this laser that would emit this beam that was strong enough to pop a balloon. So he was this super smart kid who always had straight A's. Taylor joined the band Iron Butterfly in 1974 when he was 22 years old. He left the band in 1977, and Taylor went on to do his own things. He didn't really discuss his time in Iron Butterfly with folks, almost like he was embarrassed about it. The reason may be that he was only in the band for a couple of years. He wasn't there during their time of huge success years before. It's almost like asking John Karabi about his time in Motley Crue. They weren't doing so well during that time period. After Iron Butterfly broke up, he would play in a couple smaller bands with the drummer Ron Bushy. Ron and Taylor were close friends. Ron actually passed away in August of 2021 at the age of 79 of esophageal cancer. I'll bring up Ron Bushy later on. When Taylor disappeared, what helped bring a lot of media attention to the case was the stories all read, former Iron Butterfly bassist is missing. So yes, he was the bassist of this rock band temporarily, but he was doing bigger things with his tech career. 
When Taylor was touring with Iron Butterfly, he did 1,000 sit-ups a day on the tour bus. He would also use hotel and diner napkins to scribble lyrics and math equations. One lyric he wrote read, Progress is on the move. Computer life is such a groove. I know that sounds corny to most people, but to me it's almost chilling because he wrote that in the 70s, and again, Taylor was just way ahead of his time. Taylor received his degree in aerospace engineering. He worked for the U.S. Department of Defense on the MX missile system. His job was to make sure that the MX missile could fly accurately. I would not want to have that job for sure. He came up with a system that would predict a failure before it happened. Taylor's cubicle that he worked in was taped shut. This was so that everyone knew what he was working on was classified. The guy was a die-hard math and computer whiz. In 1990, he founded the tech company Total Multimedia, Inc. His partner was Randy Jackson. Not the Randy Jackson from American Idol, but Michael Jackson's youngest brother, Randy Jackson. The company developed and licensed computer compression software for CD-ROM publishers and media developers. They did a press conference to unveil what Taylor called technology for the next century. Some of the Jackson brothers and sisters showed up for this press conference. Not Michael, though. Having Michael Jackson there would have brought way more attention to this. You guys have to remember that this is the early 90s. People didn't have smartphones and internet. Taylor was way ahead of his time when it came to technology, so a lot of people couldn't grasp what Taylor was putting out. I remember having internet in 1994, and I was one of the only ones in my friend group that had it, and I had to share an email address with my dad, which was fun for any teenage girl, as you can imagine. The internet was nothing like it is today. It was a completely different experience. Taylor heard about this upcoming technology called facial recognition software, and he was obsessed with incorporating it into his business. Facial recognition is everywhere today, but in the early 90s, no one had even heard of it. Taylor told his wife and friends, what if you could take a fragment of a photo of a missing child and within seconds be able to scan a large crowd of thousands of people and identify that child? Taylor was known to a lot of people to not care about money. That was never his prime focus, and he didn't even keep track of it. His focus was solving this equation that he felt could change everything, something he and his dad had been working on for years. Taylor was described as scatterbrained, and I don't mean that in an insulting way. He just always had big things on the forefront of his mind. For example, he boarded a plane thinking it was heading to Atlanta, but it was actually going to Hawaii. Taylor spent many years doing his research into concepts that seem very far out to myself, and probably you as well. He researched if things could travel faster than the speed of light. We don't know if this was the exact formula he spent all those years working on. All we know was that he was working on something groundbreaking. Taylor was working on a transmission project that he claimed would result in faster-than-light communications. This was related to his father's theory. If he could figure it out, it would discredit an Albert Einstein theory. Taylor is convinced he will crack this code that he and his father have spent their lives trying to do. When Taylor was a teenager, he would watch his dad work, furiously scribbling out, scribbling out math on a paper. He would ask, 
Dad, how come you're always working on that one equation? His dad responded, there is only one real equation. It's all one equation. Total Multimedia Inc. wasn't doing so well and went bankrupt in 1994. It was taken over by new management, and at the time of Taylor's disappearance, he owned $1.7 million in stock. So Taylor has plenty of money if he needed it. But again, Taylor's focus was never about money. He continued to work there and was still employed at the time of his disappearance, but he was notably affected by the reorganization of the company and the fact that it went bankrupt. He was still able to provide quite well for his wife and two children, but many described him as being emotionally distraught. According to an article from Washington Post in 1996, it read the following quote, By January 1995, CEO Dan Shields and Tom Simpson, Total Multimedia's other partner, were worried about what they considered Taylor's undisciplined work habits. He would toil late into the night, come to the office boiling with excitement about his fractal and light speed research, the stuff his father had spent a lifetime working on. He began making pronouncements, God's a scientist, a perfect scientist, Chaos is perfect order. He declared that in a previous life, he, Dan Shields, and Tom Simpson had been brothers. We let it go too far, Dan Shields says today. The worst part about it was for us, we believed that there were definite points of merit in Taylor's thinking process. We were trying to nail it down to put some structure and discipline on it. End quote. On February 11th, 1995, This is 24 hours before his disappearance. Taylor and his wife, Jennifer, went hiking, and Jennifer says while on the hike, he was behaving bizarrely. He seemed to have a ton of energy and was profoundly excited. For example, he pointed at a cross on a hill and said our house was in its path. Keep in mind, he's saying these weird things, but this man is a rocket scientist and a math genius. He's not just some guy rambling about nonsense. He had to believe what he was saying was correct. Jennifer later claims that this was due to sleep deprivation. Taylor is blurting out that people were going to try to take him. She asks who? Who was going to take you? He says, them. He's acting out episodes of mania and he's visibly excited. He calls a friend and yells that he's channeled the 10th insight of the Celestine prophecy. He is really excited, and he says he's lucky he was even able to interpret it because it was encrypted. His friend writes down what he says, and it was, Learn from the beauty of the eye that beholds all the wonders of the world and yet is blind unto itself. The difference is between day and night. He hangs up, and he's jumping around the room. He tells his wife, I have finally proven my father's theories for the last 35 years are correct. Me, your husband did it. He also says they'll be expecting President Clinton and his wife Hillary to fly in to congratulate him on figuring out the equation. At this point, I imagine Jennifer doesn't want to kill his buzz, but she has to be feeling terrified. He tells his sister, Kathy, you've got to be centered. If you're centered, you'll be saved when the supernova happens and they come. He tells his wife, Jennifer, that they'll have to move into a new house, one with really high walls so they can't get to him. He never says who it might be, though. He just refers to them 
as them. Keep in mind, Taylor didn't have any known enemies to his family and friends. He was not also, he was also not on any drugs or anything like that. The next morning, this is February 12th, 1995, Taylor gets up and he's got to pick up a colleague from the airport, but first he's going to make a pit stop. He stops at his father-in-law's house. Now, his father-in-law is very ill with terminal cancer. Taylor comes running in and tells him he has something for him. He pulls out a device and says, it's all right here. I know you may not understand it, but it's all right here. He hands his dying father-in-law the wondrous secret device, and it was a child's kaleidoscope toy. His dying father-in-law doesn't know why he came to him of all people that morning. It's also in reports that Taylor was working around the clock and hadn't slept in almost two weeks. Taylor heads to the airport to pick up his colleague, and he's waiting in the parking lot area in his van. Now, Taylor's early. He's about an hour early, so he's going to be waiting for a while here. He sits in his van, and the time passes. 45 minutes have passed. His colleague should be exiting the plane in 15 minutes. When suddenly Taylor starts his van and leaves, no one knows the reason for this, but he just leaves. Now, I know it's only February of 1995, but Taylor has a cell phone. Cell phones were very rare at the time. Only rich people had them or super tech people like Taylor. If you want to see what a cell phone looked like in 1995, just look up a Nokia 1610. I'm sure Taylor's phone looks similar to that. So he leaves the airport and Taylor places 17 calls from his cell phone. He calls his lawyer, his colleague, and a few others. He calls his wife and tells her plans have changed. He says he has a big surprise for her. Then he placed another call to his former drummer, Ron Bushy. He said, Bush, it's Taylor. I love you more than life itself. And then he hung up. After that, another call was made to his wife telling her, whatever happens, I'll always be with you. Then he makes a final call. This would be the end of his cell phone activity. Taylor calls 911. He tells the operator, this is Philip Taylor Kramer. I am going to kill myself. A massive search is underway for Taylor, but it was like he simply vanished into thin air. Now, you may be thinking the same thing I was. Taylor called 911. He's driving around and he told the operator he's going to kill himself. Case closed. End of story. But when someone does that, 99% of the time, a body is found. I touched on this when I was telling you the story of Brian Schaefer. Suicidal people want to be found after they're gone. But even more than this, Taylor once told his father, If I ever say I'm going to kill myself, do not believe it. That is a signal that I need help. A Los Angeles police officer who was working on Taylor's disappearance was quoted as saying, Something happened during that time, either in his head or at the terminal, that made him turn away. And I'll tell you, I haven't a clue. The guy didn't have an enemy. The guy was a dedicated family man. I checked him out. Whatever happened in his head while at the airport or whatever happened right in the airport, I've got a feeling we'll learn from Taylor himself. End quote. Days go by and there's no sign of Taylor or his Ford Aerostar van. 
Taylor is not hard to miss. He's six foot five inches tall and 220 pounds. He stands out in a crowd of people. Finally, two weeks after Taylor's disappearance, something happens. His wife, Jennifer, is out, and when she comes home, she checks the answering machine, and there's a message. She plays the message, and she hears her husband's voice. It said, hello, hello, and then that's it, nothing else. Jennifer is absolutely devastated that she missed the call. A number of sightings come in over the next week or two. One came from a pawn shop owner who said he is 100% certain that Taylor was in his shop. He says the guy talked about computers and guitars and he knew his stuff. He is positive this was Taylor. Another credible sighting was a lady who was having a yard sale. She said Taylor pulled up to her yard, our yard sale in his Ford Aerostar van and he was looking for clothes, but she didn't have any that were his size since he was a big tall guy. She too is positive this was Taylor. The search went on for Taylor for years with no one really able to piece together why he had made those calls, what any of this, his strange statements and behavior in the days before his vanishing had meant, or where he had gone. Why did he call his wife two weeks after his disappearance and say, hello, hello? Taylor's case was featured on America's Most Wanted and Unsolved Mysteries. When that happens, tips come flooding in by the thousands. None of them help to locate Taylor, though. It wouldn't be until four years after his disappearance when a break in the case finally comes. On May 29, 1999, two hikers were hiking in this canyon in Malibu, California, now, from where they were hiking was kind of like a graveyard for abandoned vehicles. There's vehicles there with weeds growing up through the hood and so on. They were taking pictures of all the cars. Down at the bottom of this ravine, they see a 1993 Ford Aerostar van. One of them walks over to the window and looks inside at the passenger seat, and he sees a long leg bone. The hiker is startled and tells his friend that can't possibly be a leg bone. These two are freaked out. They back away from the van and one of them steps on something. He looks down and it's a human skull. The remains were ultimately determined to be Taylor Kramer's. They matched them through dental records. The official cause of death was ruled a probable suicide. The detectives think he killed himself due to money problems, but like I've mentioned before, Taylor didn't care about money. Plus, he had a million in stock in his former company. His family does not believe this theory. They say Taylor would never, under any circumstances, abandon his family and his work he spent his lifetime working on. There are a few theories about what exactly happened to Taylor. His old bandmate, Ron Bushy, thinks that Taylor was targeted because of the technology that he was working on. Maybe Taylor stumbled upon some new technology that someone thought the world was not ready for, so he had to get rid of him. Others think that he may have indeed taken his own life because of his company's struggles and the pressure he experienced. Some people also speculate that Taylor had gone mad after working on projects and complex equations, coupled with lack of sleep for two weeks and working around the clock. Perhaps he was hallucinating. 
He truly believed that people were following him and that he was a target. I tend to side with the last theory that he was just hallucinating and he had a, a lack of sleep and he was pretty much going mad, but that's just my opinion. There were more theories by some folks, but these theories are way more outlandish and take a very open mind to believe. Some say he's still alive, but Sherry, his skull was found and it matched his dental records. Well, remember his skull was stepped on. Some believe this altered the teeth and they may not have been a direct forensic match. One psychic claims that Philip is alive and well and being worshipped as a god in a native tribe in California. Next, stay with me now. <laughs> Many believe he is a time traveler. He had so much knowledge and seemed to be otherworldly that it would make sense. There's other weird ideas that he had uploaded his consciousness into a computer or been abducted by aliens. What really bugs the shit out of me is the fact that his skull was found outside of the van. The windows were up. How did his skull get outside of the van and the rest of the bones were found inside the van? To me, that just doesn't make any sense. Taylor's father thinks that in those final days, Taylor might have been drugged or abducted by business rivals who were using him for mind control. He doesn't think his son was crazy. He's quoted as saying, Taylor had told me a long time before that there were people bothering him. They wanted what he was doing, and some of them threatened him. He once told me that if I ever say I'm going to kill myself, don't you believe it one bit. I'll be needing help. His sister backed this up, saying he told her that he was having problems with some folks who wanted what he knew. Taylor had grand visions that he felt could change technology, communications, and the world itself. His favorite statement is, given all time, all things are possible. I bet if Taylor could see the world today with all the sophisticated technology we have, he would be fascinated. If alive today, Taylor would be 69 years old. He was a rock star, a tech genius, and now a mystery. Rest in peace, Philip Taylor Kramer. That's it for this week, and I'll see you all again soon. Take care and much love to you all.